This presentation is entitled Bringing Back the Black Robe Regiment. You see me standing here this afternoon wearing this robe, which is rather warm, I want you to know right now. Well, during the 18th century, pastors climbed in their pulpits every Sunday wearing robes just like I have on here. And they would stand before their people and they would preach the Bible unapologetically, unashamedly. They merged civil and religious liberty. In fact, they would preach from scriptures like Proverbs 13:44 that says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Or Psalm 9:17, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. They would stand before those people and literally become uh, information central for them. Most of the people in the colonies got most of their information from their pastor. Now, the reason why the Black Robe Regiment is such an important subject in today's time is because they played a central role in what happened in the war for our independence. And what I would like to do today is share with you about some of those and let you get at least a little picture of the heritage that we've received as Americans. And for those of us who are Christians and especially pastors, the heritage that we received from the pastors who preceded us. Now I want to begin with this man, John Muhlenberg. John Muhlenberg was a pastor in uh, Trapp, Pennsylvania, and then he had moved to Woodstock, Virginia. And he had uh, struggled for quite some time with the conflict between the colonies and the crown. He was convinced that the crown uh, was tyrannous and that the colonists should stand up and fight. And so Muhlenberg, after having fully persuaded himself in his mind that this is what God wanted him to do, climbed into his pulpit on January the 21st, 1776, and he proceeded to preach from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now most of you are probably familiar that Ecclesiastes 3 says that there's a time for all things. And then he read verse 8, which says there is a time of war and a time of peace. And then he did something that his, uh, his people didn't expect. He closed his Bible and he said, there is a time for all things, a time to preach and there is a time to pray, but there's also a time to fight and that time has now come. And then he stepped out of his pulpit, walked to the back of his auditorium and he did something that they'd never seen happen in all of the years that they had attended church in this church in Woodstock, Virginia because he began to remove his clerical robe. And underneath his clerical robe, he had on a colonial officer's uniform. Muhlenberg, <laughs> Muhlenberg had been commissioned by George Washington to raise a regiment from the Woodstock, Virginia area. And so he stood before his men and he took his musket and he said, men, it is now time to fight for liberty. He had already preached and prepared his people for this moment. They knew what this was all about. And as I said, he walked to the back of his auditorium. As he opened the door to his church, a drummer began to play a role, and Muhlenberg stood there with his musket urging his men to enlist, and they did. In fact, the next day he led a number of men from Woodstock, Virginia off to war. He led them for the entire war. 
In fact, by the war's end, Muhlenberg had become such a decorated general that he had been promoted to major general. He led those men in battles, as you can see, Morristown, Brandywine, Monmouth Courthouse. He became one of Washington's most trusted generals and was actually honored with the privilege of being at the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown. This is the famous painting in our nation's rotunda. And if you will look right over here, that third man seated on a horse is John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He was a pastor who set aside his clerical robes and believed that you sometimes need to put boot leather to the Bible. And that's exactly what he did. He became representative of all of these black robe regiment preachers. Today, in Statuary Hall in our capital, you can see a statue placed there by the state of Pennsylvania. And notice Muhlenberg's clerical robe is hanging over his right arm and he's holding his sword with his left. Now, this is what the black robe regiment was all about. These pastors believed that civil and religious liberties are connected and they led their people to join the fight. But it, 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 it was all throughout the colonies, not just in Pennsylvania and Virginia. Now the great historian Frank Moore in his book in 1862, and by the way, if you really want to read about the true history of America, you generally can't read modern books. You have to go back many years. But Frank Moore said about the pastors, he said, the preachers of the revolution did not hesitate to attack the great political and social evils of their day. John Wingate Thornton, in his book, The Pulpit of the American Revolution, published in 1860, said, The fathers of the republic invoked God in their civil assemblies, called upon their chosen teachers of religion for counsel from the Bible, and recognized its precepts as the law of their public conduct. The fathers did not divorce politics and religion, but they denounced the separation as ungodly. Now notice the reversal today. Today we're being told that if pastors mix politics and religion, that is ungodly. In the days of our revolution, or our war of independence as I prefer, they believed not to mix them was ungodly. Do you see the reversal that has happened in our nation? He goes on to say, they prepared for the struggle, went into battle, not as soldiers of fortune, but with the word of God in their hearts and trusting in Him. This was the secret of that moral energy which sustained the Republic in its material weakness against superior numbers and discipline and all the power of England. England sent her armies to compel submission and the colonists appealed to heaven. And that's exactly what happened. Now here's another black robe preacher. This is not a Lutheran, this is a Presbyterian. I mentioned him earlier. His name is James Caldwell. He was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. Now this guy was a character. Every Sunday, Caldwell would walk into his pulpit wearing two pistols like this. And when he got to the pulpit, he would pull them out and place the pistols on the pulpit, preach. When he was finished, take the pistols, hook them back in his, in his belt, walk to the back of the church and greet his members. Now that's the kind of guy that Caldwell was. He believed that pastors must stand for truth, not just in their pulpits, but in their communities and if need be on the battlefield. He was actually hated by the British. As you can see, he was called the rebel high priest and the high priest of the rebellion. 
Well, his wife was killed when a British soldier shot into their house and uh, Mullen, I mean, excuse me, Caldwell actually did his wife's funeral. Well, after the funeral, the war had moved to Springfield, New Jersey, so he jumped on his horse after leaving his children in the care of some of the townspeople and he went to lead his men at Springfield, New Jersey. When he got there, the soldiers were running out of wadding for their muskets. Now, if you know anything about these flintlock muskets, you know that without wadding, you can't use these things. So what were they gonna do? They were gonna be defeated simply because they didn't have wadding. So he jumped back on his horse, rode down to the first Presbyterian church of Springfield. When he went down to that church, he grabbed two armloads of hymn books. He came riding back to his men, and this painting depicts it. He started throwing the hymn books at the men, encouraging them to tear the pages out and use the pages for wadding. Now in that day, a very, a very famous hymn writer was a writer by the name of Isaac Watts. And so as he was throwing the books to them, he was yelling them, give them Watts, boys, give them Watts. And that's where the old saying that we use today, give them what for, that's where that comes from. It comes from the Presbyterian black-robed preacher, James Caldwell, as he's throwing hymn books at his men, telling them to use the pages for wadding. So that gives you a little glimpse into these preachers. Now, because the Presbyterians of that day and time were some of the fieriest of the preachers, the British blamed the war primarily on them. For instance, King George III called the American Revolution a Presbyterian rebellion. Prime Minister Horace Walpole said to Parliament, there is no use crying about it. Cousin America has eloped with a Presbyterian parson. <laughs> An ardent colonial supporter of King George III writing home said, I fix all the blame for these extraordinary proceedings upon the Presbyterians. They have been the chief and principal instruments in all these flaming measures. A Hessian captain writing home to his family said, call this war by whatever name you may, it is nothing more or less than a Presbyterian rebellion. The great historian George Bancroft said this, the revolution of 1776, so far as it was affected by religion, was a Presbyterian measure. So you can begin to see a pattern developing here. The British and now historians considered this black robe regiment to be the real threat. They were actually given the title black robe regiment by the British. A British sympathizer, Peter Oliver, is the one who was credited with coming up with the title. Remember, they preached in black robes. They thought, okay, black robe regiment. And they considered these guys a bigger threat than the actual colonial army. Now, I talked earlier about how they didn't see any separation between civil and religious liberty. Here's a British pastor, Thomas Newton. Listen, listen to what he says. The scriptures, though often perverted to purposes of tyranny, are yet in their own nature calcul calculated to promote the civil as well as religious liberties of mankind. True religion and virtue and liberty are more nearly related and more intimately connected with each other than people commonly consider. And then he goes on to quote Paul the Apostle when he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You see, they understood these principles, and this is why they were fighting. Now, most of us have heard about the midnight ride of Paul Revere, right? I mean, we've heard about that for years. The British are coming. The British are coming. April the 18th, 1775. But here's the part of the story that I was never told. When I learned it, 
it made me mad that someone had not told me in my life. See, that night that Paul Revere was riding through the streets of Lexington yelling the British were coming, he was actually headed to this home. You may be saying, okay, well, who lived there? Well, there was a pastor by the name of Jonas Clark. Jonas Clark was the pastor in Lexington, and that night he had two special guests in his home, Samuel Adams and John Hancock. His wife was cousins with John Hancock, and these two people were in Pastor Clark's house. Hancock and Adams look at Clark. There's Paul Revere sitting in the yard, and they say, Okay, well, Pastor Clark, will the men fight? And here's what Pastor Clark said. I trained them for this very hour. They would fight, and if need be, die too under the shadow of the house of God. And that's exactly what they did on April the 19th, the very next morning, 1775. Pastor Jonas Clark and John Parker led those citizens out to face the British. There's a stone there today that marks the spot where John Parker said, stand your ground, don't fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. And that is exactly what happened. Now the British commander rides up to these Minutemen and he says, throw down your arms, you blanking rebels, in the name of the King of England. Guess what they yell back? We recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. And then the first shot, the shot heard round the world, was fired, and the war for our independence was on. Those men led by Pastor Jonas Clark and Deacon John Parker. When the battle was over and the smoke had cleared, a number of citizens had been killed in that melee, and in fact, uh, Jonas Clark had seven of his own members lying on the porch of his church who had done just what he said they would do. They died under the shadow of the house of God for your liberty and mine. Now see, these are the stories that make for the history and heritage of our nation. The problem is though, most of us do not realize. And so as that battle raged all the way from Lexington, all the way across to Concord Bridge, when the thing was over, 49 colonists were killed, 39 wounded. The newspapers of the day talked about the brutality of the British, uh, unprovoked. All of the efforts that they had made to not fight had, of course, as you know, come to no avail. And it was either fight or be subjugated as slaves. In fact, Jonas Clark, when the battle was over, said, from this day will be dated the liberty of the world. And in some uh, respects, Jonas Clark was correct. In fact, a year later, April the 19th, 1776, he preached a message. In those days, they couldn't record them, so they would print them as pamphlets. These are sermons that they used uh, to recruit soldiers for the war effort. Here's the title of that message, The Fate of Bloodthirsty Oppressors and God's Tender Care of His Distressed People. Their titles were longer than most sermons are today. <laughs> These guys were serious. They weren't playing games. Today at Lexington, there's a statue commemorating those first Minutemen who stood against the British. There's a granite monument with a Bible on top representing the fact that they were led by their pastor and their deacon, John Parker. Now, this pastor, George Duffield, in 1783, referring to those pastors said, Quick as a flash of lightning glares from pole to pole, so sudden did a military spirit pervade those then limited colonies, nor were those of the sacred order, referring to the preachers, wanting to their country when their civil and religious liberties were all at stake. But as became faithful watchmen, they blew the trumpet on the walls of our Zion, sounded an alarm for defense. Now that's what they did. Now what produced this generation of black robe preachers? 
Well, a few decades before, the Winds Revival had swept through America in what is called the Great Awakening. And preachers were forced to go outside and hold meetings because of hundreds that would attend. Nobody had a church big enough, and so they would literally build brush arbors and preach outside. Preachers that you've probably heard of, like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Jonathan Mayhew, these were the men that were being used by the Lord to cause this great revival that was producing, unbeknownst to them, the next generation of preachers who would be the Black Robe Regiment. See, they were planting seeds and building a fire in these guys' hearts. Now, if you think about Mayhew, uh, he is called the father of civil and religious liberty in Massachusetts and America. He was famous for election sermons. When's the last time you heard an election sermon? Yeah. See, he was famous for these. He's the one that made the no taxation without representation famous in an uh, election sermon he preached in 1750. He was the guy that was against the Stamp Act. He urged the colonists to unite. And his sermons and writings were used to recruit the colonists to stand up against the crown and to stand for liberty. Now I want you to think about this. There are three institutions, and if I asked most of, most of you, you could give the correct answer. There are three institutions that God created and ordained to maintain peace and life on planet Earth. They are the family, government, and the church. You know what we're being told today? You can preach about two of those. You can preach about the family and the church, but not the government. Adrian Rogers used to say, government's God's idea. It's simply inconceivable then that God would create government and then tell His people to stay out of it. It doesn't make any sense. But see, we've bought that lie, we've retreated, and we created a vacuum. A vacuum that the pagans and the libs have been too, more than too willing to fill. So we've walked away from the battlefield. We've simply surrendered. And the pastors have allowed it to happen. Now see, they had a huge influence on the founders. Look at Samuel Cooper here. He was the pastor of Brattle Street Church in Boston. John Hancock and John Adams attended his church. He uh, was an intimate friend of Samuel Adams, and he regularly corresponded with Benjamin Franklin. See, these guys befriended the founders. They did more than befriend them. In many instances, they actually trained them. Now, here's a pastor, Reverend Jacob Duchesne. When Continental uh, Congress first got together to meet, they said, well, what do we do? And a motion was made that they ought to have some preacher come down, read a passage of Scripture, and pray before they, uh, they started their business. Well, one of the men stood up and said, but wait, we're all from different denominations. How could we all pray together? And Samuel Adams, who is standing right here, said, I am no bigot. I can pray with anyone who fears God and loves his country. They brought Duche down there. He got up in front of them and read Psalm 35, which happened to be his morning devotion. I challenge you to read Psalm 35 and see if that wasn't divine, that that was his devotion for that morning. And he read it to these men. And this great painting is painted from eyewitness accounts. That was September the 7th, 1774 in Carpenter's Hall. See, once again, it was a preacher. Now, notice even here, Duche said, I consider myself under the twofold character of a minister of Christ. What did he mean by twofold? Well, what he meant was, I've got to preach the Bible, and I must also preach what the Bible says about things like government 
and politics. And he proceeds then, he says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And then he jumps and talks about civil liberty as being the same thing. He even said this to the soldiers of the Continental Army as he was preaching. He said, Stand fast by a strong faith and dependence upon Jesus Christ, the great captain of your salvation. Enlist under the banner of his cross. Let this motto be written upon your hearts. Under this standard you shall overcome. He said that to the soldiers. Do you think that that would inspire them to go out there and face the British? Of course it would. Imagine what would happen today if preachers would do the same thing. Imagine what congregations would do if we just had men with enough courage to say things like this. Here's William Gordon, pastor of the Third Church in Roxbury, Massachusetts, 1774. The pulpit is devoted in general to more important purposes than the fate of kingdoms or the civil rights of human nature. But then notice down here, he says, but still there are special times and seasons when it may treat of politics. What he's trying to say is politics is not off limits. My people need to hear about politics from their spiritual leader. Now here's John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon was the only vocational pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence, but he was also uh, president of Princeton University. And when they were debating as to whether or not they ought to sign the Declaration, here's dialogue that occurred. Prior to their signing it, one of the members said, we are not ripe for revolution. And here's what John Witherspoon said in reply. Not ripe, sir. In my judgments, we are not only ripe, but unless some action is taken, we will be rotting. Now that's a preacher, and he encouraged them then to get up, and they did. They signed the Declaration of Independence. Here's Samuel Langdon. I mean, you, you can just pull one message up right after the other, and you find that it wasn't just a few little hotheads. It was the preachers across the colonies. Samuel Langdon, notice here, he's not a nobody. He's president of Harvard University. He's writing a letter here speaking for all the pastors in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Listen to what he says. It has been found necessary to raise an army for the common safety, and our brave countrymen have so willingly offered themselves to this hazardous service. We cannot forbear. Now the we there is the pastors. He said, we cannot forbear upon this occasion to offer our services to the public and to signify our readiness with the consent of our several congregations to officiate as chaplains to the army. Now I want you to know that chaplains in those days were a little different than the chaplains today. Because when the fighting started, they put their Bibles away and grabbed a musket and fought. Now here's a Baptist preacher by the name of James Screven. He's known in history as General James Screven. He was a pastor in Georgia. He was a member of the Provincial Congress that met in 1775. He joined the Colonial Army once the war broke out. He, be, he started as a colonel. Later on, the uh, state of Georgia promoted him to, uh, to a brigadier general of the uh, entire Georgia militia. At the Battle of Spencer Hill, he was ambushed and he was wounded two times and while he was lying on the field dying, a British soldier walked up and saw that he was still alive, took his musket, pointed down at him, and shot him again while he was lying on the ground. See, the British hated these preachers. They hated them so much that if they caught them, they would normally execute them on the battlefield. If they could find their families, they would either throw them into prison or execute them. They would burn their houses, burn their churches. Did you know the majority of churches in New York City were burned by the British when, when, when they uh, occupied New York? They hated these Christians because they knew that they were the reason. Well, they took his body back, buried him outside his church in Midway, Georgia, 
Congress erected his tombstone, and I think it's kind of interesting to see what Congress wrote. This stone marks the spot where repose the remains of Brigadier General James Scraven in recognition of whose life and services the Congress of the United States has reared a monument in this cemetery. He was a Galliot officer who, though but 28 years of age at the time of his death, had attained the rank of Brigadier General Baptist Pastor James Screven. And I could just go on and on and on. Here's Joab Houghton. He's another pastor from New Jersey. Here's what he said when he heard about the fight at Lexington in 75. This is what he said to his congregation. This is not the men of the city. This is his church. He said, men of New Jersey, the Redcoats are murdering our brethren of New England. Who follows me to Boston? His men went home, got their muskets. He went and got his. And the pastor led his men to Boston and joined the fight. Are you beginning to see the kind of heritage that we've inherited? Now then, he would preach to troops from Ticonderoga to Valley Forge when they were facing the bitter winter there. But it wasn't just pastors, it was deacons, deacons from the same church. Uh, one deacon led the, uh, the infantry at the Battle of Long Island. The same uh, church produced another deacon that commanded the artillery at Germantown. I mean, over and over and over. Now, this is the one quote that I would like to read to you, though, before we get to the end of this. This is a sermon by Samuel West. Now, I want you to notice who he's preaching to. He's preaching to the House of Representatives of the state of Massachusetts. This is an election sermon. Now this is just a portion of it, but this will give you a flavor of how these guys preach. Look at what he says. It is an indispensable duty, my brethren, which we owe to God and our country to rouse up and bestir ourselves and being animated with a noble zeal for the sacred cause of liberty to defend our lives and fortunes to the shedding of the last drop of blood. The love of our country, the tender affection that we have for our wives and children, and the regard that we ought to have for unborn posterity, yea, everything that is dear and sacred, do now loudly call on us to use our best endeavors to save our country. We must turn our plowshares into swords and our pruning hooks into spears and learn the art of self-defense against our enemies. To be careless and remiss or to neglect the cause of our country through the base motives of avarice or self-interest will expose us not only to the resentments of our fellow creatures, but to the displeasure of Almighty God. To save our country from the hands of our oppressors ought to be dearer to us than our lives and next to the eternal salvation of our souls, the thing of greatest importance. A duty so sacred it cannot be dispensed with for the sake of our secular concerns. Doubtless for this reason, God has manifested His anger against those who have refused to assist their country against its cruel oppressors. And then his, here's how he ends this. What a dreadful doom are those exposed to who have not only refused to assist their country in this time of distress, but have, through motives of interest or ambition, shown themselves enemies to their country by opposing us in the measures we have taken. He that is so lost to humanity as to be willing to sacrifice his country for the sake of avarice or ambition has arrived at the highest stage of wickedness that human nature is capable of and deserves a much worse name than I at present care to give him. But I think I may with propriety say that such a person has forfeited his right to human society. <laughs> can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine a preacher preaching that? this Sunday from his pulpit. But that's what these people heard all of the time. See, our founders understood it. Now what changed this? Well, a number of things. Pastors have been taught their whole lives that mixing politics and religion is wrong. 
Some pastors are afraid of the consequences, like, you know, they're afraid of offending their members, criticism, losing their nonprofit status. But I'm telling you why some pastors don't do anything, because they're cowards. Pastors have grown soft. In fact, Paul Blair and I have often talked about around Christmas time wrapping up these DVDs and mailing them to our fellow pastors and calling it Spinomatic and see if we can get some of them to grow a backbone. <laughs> it is time for pastors to do something. Now, I want to touch on this real briefly because I want to tell you some of the efforts that we're doing now to try to change this. This is Lyndon Johnson running for his second term as a senator of Texas. And when he was running... Uh, there were some conservative groups like this group, Facts Forum, and there was another group, Committee for Constitutional Government. They were connecting him to communism. So he said, well, I've got to shut these guys up. So he was able to slip through in the Senate an amendment to the tax code, to the tax law. It's ever since been called the Johnson Amendment, July the 2nd, 1954. Here's what it says. Nonprofit entities, including churches, cannot participate in or intervene in, including the publishing or uh, distributing of statements, any political campaign on behalf of, and then this was added, or in opposition to any candidate for public office. Up until 1954, starting with the men who preached that recruited uh, soldiers to fight for liberty, they had freely preached these things. You've seen examples. It's not my opinion. It's the record of history. All of a sudden, in 1954, did you know that there are only two paragraphs in the congressional record that even talk about this uh, amendment? Two paragraphs. That's it. He slipped it through, and ever since then, the IRS has used this to intimidate preachers. See, the problem is, any law that's unconstitutional is no law at all. And I believe the Johnson Amendment is unconstitutional. I mean, read it for yourself. You know what the First Amendment says. Congress will make no law. Congress, no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And yet the Johnson Amendment does just that. Some of us have been working with the Alliance Defense Fund for the last three general elections. We've gotten into our pulpits, given biblical reasons why, and told our people who to vote for and who not to vote for. But the way the tax laws are written... You can't just sue the IRS. See, they have to come after you. So the Alliance Defense Fund has helped to organize us. Paul Blair and I, my friend in uh, Edmond, were two of the first 33 pastors nationwide that dared the IRS to back up the Johnson Amendment by taking us to court. Now they have, uh, well, thank you. Now, you saw this earlier. John Quincy Adams knew what the revolution was all about. He understood. It was the merging of religious and civil principles. He knew that. They all knew that. To be quite honest with you, most Christians do. I, I wish I had time to go through some of these things. Uh, this is one of the signers of the Constitution. He's given this speech, first graduating class of Columbia University after the War of Independence. Look what he says to the students. Remember, too, that you are the redeemed of the Lord, that you are bought with a price, even the inestimable price of the precious blood of the Son of God. Acquaint yourselves with Him in His Word and Holy Ordinances. Can you imagine somebody preaching that at Columbia University today? You can't even pray at the graduation ceremony. Here he's preaching that. Now, we started with John Muhlenberg, right? He's the one that pulls off his robe, goes to war. Well, his brother Frederick had written his and John's other brother talking about how John shouldn't get involved in politics. Well, John heard about the letter. 
and he wrote a letter back to his brother Frederick. By the way, Frederick was also a pastor. He pastored in Trap, Pennsylvania also. Here's what John Muhlenberg wrote back to his brother Frederick. He said, I am a clergyman, it is true, but I am a member of society as well as the poorest layman, and my liberty is as dear to me as to any man. Shall I then sit still and enjoy myself at home when the best blood of the continent is spilling? Heaven forbid it. Do you think if America should be conquered, I should be safe? Far from it. And would you not sooner fight like a man than die like a dog? I am called by my country to its defense. The cause is just and noble, and so far am I from thinking that I am wrong. I am convinced it is my duty so to do, a duty I owe to my God and to my country. Now that's what John wrote back to his pacifist pastor brother, Frederick. Well, here's the problem with Frederick. He went into his church one morning, and the British had turned his church into a barracks. They'd thrown all their gear inside. They were sleeping on the pews. Uh, a group of half-drunk British soldiers were playing the organ, singing barroom tunes, and they'd turned their horses loose, and they'd eaten all the wheat that Frederick had planted outside his church. All of a sudden, he started to rethink this thing. Now, wait just a minute. Maybe preachers ought to get involved. And I don't know whether he saw the light, but he felt the heat because he immediately became a member of the Continental Congress and then he served as a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and he was the very first Speaker of the House of the United States of America. So John Muhlenberg's brother, who didn't think preachers ought to get involved once the British desecrated his church, changed his tune. Well, to kind of wrap things up here, Samuel Adams said, if ever a time should come when vain and aspiring men shall possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. Friends, I would suggest to you that that time is now. You know what Burke said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I gave you the quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer earlier, not to act is to act, not to speak is to speak. God's not going to hold us guiltless, and in particular preachers. Ralph Reed said that in the 2008 election there were 28 million evangelical voters that either were registered and didn't vote or could have been registered and weren't. Just imagine what a difference 28 million Christians would make if they would vote what they say they believe. You see, friends, we have a massive army ready to fight with us. All we've got to do is get their pastor generals to lead them. All we've got to do is build a fire under these preachers and they then can lead this black robe regiment. But let me close here with something that John Adams said in his diary when he was 20 years old. Here's what he wrote on, on uh, February the 22nd, 1756 in his diary. He said, Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, industry, justice, kindness, charity towards his fellow men, to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia! What a paradise would this region be, whose law book was what? The Bible. Well, I'd submit to you that just a few years later, John Adams, standing right there, did that very thing. See, friends, I am convinced that it is time that we bring back the Black Robe Regiment. And I'm going to ask you if you would join in prayer with me, not just now, but throughout the many weeks and months ahead, that God would build a fire in the hearts of our spiritual leaders that we call pastors and raise up a new black robe regiment
that would stand up for truth and stop giving in to comfort and salary and the praise of their people, but instead would stand tough. Thank you guys for coming this afternoon. I appreciate it so very, very much.